0: Stories about life on the inside, told by those who live it. Find Ear Hustle wherever you get your podcasts. Sunny skies, welcome to this Tuesday edition of Closer Look. I'm Rose Scott. Now coming up in just a moment, a conversation about preparing for day one and beyond with APS Superintendent, Dr. Lisa Herring. Our children have
1: been disrupted since March. We had summer learning loss. August 24th is the first day of school. It's not like when they come to you all excited and bright-eyed and then you can see them and assess where they've been. They've been emotionally traumatized. Mm -hmm. They've been instructionally traumatized. We're going to spend the week of the 17th through the 21st doing assessments and some of that will be virtual as well.
0: That conversation is minutes away, but first, our daily Georgia COVID-19 update. The State Department of Public Health reports there are 195,435 confirmed COVID-19 cases, and there are reportedly 3,842 deaths. 19,124 are hospitalized, and of those, 3,512 are ICU admissions. This, of course, is always according to the Georgia Department of Public Health. This is Closer Look. Closer Look continues now here on 90.1 WABE, Atlanta's choice for NPR. I'm Rose Scott. August 24th, 2020, day one for Atlanta Public school students as they return for the fall school year. It's also the first day one for newly named superintendent, Dr. Lisa Herring, and it will be unlike any other day one of schools in her education career. It's all virtual, and like many districts throughout the nation, the choice to do so may not have been easy, but necessary. So joining me now is APS superintendent, Dr. Lisa Heron. Welcome back to the program.
1: Thank you. And I'm honored to be back. And uh, I'm glad to be able to join you in this conversation today.
0: You know, the last time we spoke, you were the sole finalist for the superintendent post. <laughs> now here we are as APS prepares for August 24th. Before we uh, get into what will take place, let's talk about what went into the decision to start all virtual. Uh, was it a tough decision, first of all?
1: And so, you know, my answer may surprise you. Was it a tough decision? Yes and no. Mm -hmm. The yes is the complexity of ensuring that if we roll out virtually during the time in which we were deliberating, how can we ensure that with a high level of fidelity, the instructional delivery would still touch and and provide quality, rigorous instructional uh, engagement for students and even for the teachers who execute it. Mm-hmm. um it was the delivery model and the questioning of our preparedness for that level of delivery, whether that was how we would resource out, how would we ensure that we had the capacity uh, from a technological standpoint and from a skill set standpoint uh that, that had some of the um, uh, um contr- contr- that's what contributed to the complexity of coming to a going virtual. Um, mm-hmm. And then was it hard no no when we realized that we we're in a pandemic? and uh, that for the city of Atlanta, community spread is substantial. Not only uh, is it and was it substantial then, but it continues to increase with the number of new cases um, more, uh, more frequently than we'd like to see. And when it came down to the wellness and protection of our children in Atlanta public schools, all of our children clearly are vulnerable, they're young people, but from a socioeconomic standpoint, even in the most critical, critical of circumstances, that wasn't difficult. Mm-hmm. There is a huge responsibility in public education, just as in any other role as a leader, to do what is best and what is right for people. So so that's the answer, Rose.
0: And you heard a lot of feedback from parents, community leaders as well, I imagine.
1: So we we did. I will say that there is no decision that's the perfect decision. And the feedback was a combination of opinions, suggestions, some very creative and yet the capacity to execute what we know as a professional experts would be feasible and impactful um, allowed for us to secure feedback but also forced us to think carefully it it would be important for me to also lift that you know i was announced as sole finalist back in may Mm -hmm. back in march i was a sitting superintendent just in another place with the same disruption uh, I'm 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 so proud of the pandemic preparedness team that I walked into, which resembled a great deal of the strategies that we were entertaining across this country. I think in public education, what I started to do differently, however, is to then bring into the conversation and at the virtual table, if you will, epidemiologists infectious disease specialists, public health experts, pediatricians, uh, medical university presidents, and even CEOs of some of our local hospitals to have mm-hmm. conversations and get solid advice grounded in the science of the data to also help us uh, execute what we believed was a solid decision. So certainly it wasn't done in isolation, but having those other thought partners, mm-hmm. were so cri- that was so critical for the decision making. And then at the end of the day, you know, we, again, we, it's just like we see uh, across our country, there are different positions, but I'm very clear on the responsibility that sits within the school system and how we had to execute what we believe would be in the best interest of our children and the adults that serve them.
0: Was there a consideration of possibly a hybrid start, you know, partial in-class and partial remote learning?
1: Absolutely. So the guidance that we received from the State Department and from other public health uh, domains included the consideration for not just all virtual, but also for hybrid and then, of course, face to face. But even if you look at that guidance, and it's had its own iteration of change over the last several weeks, Mm -hmm. uh, it spoke to substantial spread. And in either case, substantial spread, red zone, however you want to define it strongly recommended that we would be virtual. The hybrid model came when we would move from a substantial spread to moderate. And then of course, face-to-face is when there was an indication of low spread. And then the numbers are provided, I think is for every 100 known cases for 100,000 in terms of overall populace. We're not there, we're not low spread, we are not uh, moderate, we are still substantial and growing. And so uh, I think it's important to note that as we see a change in community spread, we have been entertaining hybrid and obviously face to face is the easiest one. Hybrid is a bit more complex, I think, particularly for larger systems. But if we see our that, that move in terms of uh, community spread, we'd be poised to start executing as needed in a phased approach, of course.
0: Superintendent Herring, if Georgia's COVID-19 confirmed cases were not increasing at the rate they would have been, that they have been, excuse me, Would the district have considered then starting school year with in-class instruction? Could this been a deciding factor if those cases were going the other way?
1: Absolutely. I I, I think I would be, I mean, absolutely. That would have, that's a difference maker. (laughs) It is a substantial difference maker.
0: For the educators, and I want to start with them for a moment, um, Mm -hmm. you know, have they already started training for online instruction only? Um, What concerns or feedback did you get from them about what they need, what resources they need?
1: Yep. So um, I, I've, I've been getting feedback since my email became active. <laughs> <laughs> um, and uh, but I, I do want to tell you what, I, what I've received most from educators mm-hmm. and teachers inside of Atlanta public schools. Um, overwhelmingly, appreciation and gratefulness and even in emails that say, although this may be new territory, I feel more, I feel better knowing that we are thinking safety mm-hmm. and, and, and wellness because we can do some level of training. And so the first part of your question was, how are we preparing them? And are they going through training? So we, when we entertain our options, One of the things we did was we looked at the school calendar. It's a 180-day calendar. Mm -hmm. We amended it. We looked at the first day of school for teachers first, which is what we do every year. Um, August 3rd, yesterday, was the first day for teachers returning. We did not change that part. Mm -hmm. What we did was we took 10 additional days from what would be the student's instructional calendar, and we removed that so that we could extend professional learning so that we could focus on all of the elements tied to virtual learning. Not just content, not just schedules, not just platforms, but also how do you deliver? How do you engage? What are the other elements that a a teacher or professional needs to be able to do in order to engage virtually? What if you're teaching beyond English, math, science, and social studies? What if you teach PE? What Mm -hmm. if you teach the arts? What if I'm in dual language immersion? Yeah, all of those things. And so we have been incredibly intentional around building capacity there so that's been that's that's our plan for the august 3rd through uh, august uh, 14th mm-hmm. the starting literally this week and, and the next week but it's important to note we had started doing some of that also over the summer it continues and then um, we also want to prepare them for being able to uh and I, this is another area where i've had mixed feedback but most of it has been positive our children have been disrupted since March. Mm-hmm. We had summer learning loss. August 24th is the first day of school. It's not like when they come to you all uh, um, excited um, and, 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 and bright-eyed, and, and then you can see them and assess where they've been. They've been emotionally traumatized. Mm-hmm. They've been instructionally traumatized. We're going to spend the week of uh, the 17th through the 21st doing assessments, and some of that will be virtual as well. Because we recognize we still have these um, parameters that we have to that we have to work within, but we are intentional around checking in on their social emotional wellness and where their uh, proficiency levels may have have evolved or not evolved. Today so you're going to so do that, that, that before do that. kids
0: come before technically yes, they, they start. Okay,
1: uh, runway to learning. Uh, We're essentially going to you know, getting ready for takeoff. So they'll be on the runway. And what we'll be doing is um, assessing them for, for emotional, social, mental health wellness, as well mm-hmm. as uh, performance, academic performance wellness.
0: The model, the online teaching model that, that the district is using, and I'm sure it varies based on the, the grade level and obviously the type of class, uh, but are you satisfied with those online models? Did you leave that up to educators or did the district decide which online model would be used?
1: I so appreciate your question. So, uh, are we satisfied with the model? We are comfortable and confident with the model. Um, And let me explain a couple of reasons why. Inside of Atlanta Public Schools, we also have technology and what we call uh, information and education technology experts. And so some of these models that we are uh, utilizing are not new to us. Um, It may be new to some teachers, but not to all. And so I wanna speak to that level of um, confidence. The issue is making certain that we can build that confidence for those who had not had high touch and use. Mm -hmm. But we also had to expand our our platform considerations, uh, particularly for even younger age groups, for elementary, pre-K, et cetera. And we didn't just grab what was out there. We did have the time and opportunity to to test and evaluate and determine that this does or doesn't work, both from a student engagement standpoint Point and from a teacher delivery standpoint. The other thing that's important to note is that Atlanta Public Schools has had AVA, Atlanta Virtual Academy, for some time now. Mm-hmm. And so we had that for second secondary, middle, and high. And we expanded it to elementary. But it also ha- gives us an internal platform for which we can gauge best practices in addition to scaling it out. Uh, we'll, I've asked both our IT information technology and our ed tech uh, department to you know be leaders in the training. And they have been. Mm-hmm. And so, yeah, we I'm, I'm, I'm proud of where we sit. That gave us even more confidence around being able to speak to going virtual.
0: Will the educators have the option of coming into their classroom or will they do this from home?
1: In Atlanta public schools, it's an option. It's an option. And so they absolutely do have that option if they want to deliver. But we've also given principals some guidance uh, around the carefulness of staff capacity in the building and we have received again appreciation for executing it as an option versus a mandate there are individuals who've compromised health health systems mm-hmm. and that can get just as complex right and so yeah it is an option principles the guidance with them is to monitor about 50% of their staff within the building on a day-to-day basis as needed, because staff is also more than just the teachers. We have front office individuals who can intercept calls, but we also have built the capacity for them to do that remotely as well.
0: If you're just joining the program, I'm joined by APS Superintendent Dr. Lisa Herring, and we're discussing day one and beyond for the fall school semester, which will be all virtual for the fall school semester. Let's talk about the kids, the students. Dr. Herring, will all will every APS student have access to a device for online learning?
1: Yes and yes. A device, and let me be clear, a device is either that Chromebook or an iPad and a hotspot because you can have a Chromebook and an iPad and no Wi-Fi connection and you don't have your all that you need we are poised and prepared to make that available. And and may I say that the ones that we deployed or distributed last semester, a high percentage of our students still have them. And so even with them returning, we will be able to, if they let us know they're having
0: issues
1: or something's been damaged or stolen, or simply we just need to make sure that it's operable, we're prepared for that as well.
0: How are you all ensuring connectivity for those households that have challenges?
1: A hotspot for each child. Mm-hmm. And so let me explain. I've had parents say, "I'm a mo- I'm a I'm a mother with seven children.
3: Mm-hmm.
1: You need seven hotspots. You don't need one, All right?" And so we recognize that. And so we have uh, secured uh, that level of capacity. And and I, I do want to acknowledge and, and celebrate two things: our partnership with Comcast mm-hmm. uh, that still continues. Uh, APS Get Connected, uh, and so. In that Comcast has also uh, get, done forgiveness on uh, cable bills if that's been needed, so if they need to get their internet up and running, uh, they have um, funding to assist with that, but households just have to let us know. And then in addition to that, um, in our Get Connected campaign, uh, we have received a, a, good, a substantial amount of philanthropic support. To- Again, make sure that the devices and the hotspots are are made available. In addition to our resourcing that out, we wanted to eliminate any any barrier that gave us a reason or gave a household a reason to be challenged. Mm-hmm. And I think, Rose, I should also share that over the next several weeks, and we're building kind of our own YouTube um, um, menu of videos. We recognize that you know we got grandmas and aunties and parents who like, so a hot spot is a what, right? So we want to give some level of guidance mm-hmm. um, for them to know how to do that.
0: And for educators as well, you all are. And for sure. educators
1: yeah. as well, you're right.
0: Listen, you talked about the pre-assessment of student academic needs due to the nine-week loss of regular in-class instruction because of COVID-19. Mm-hmm. Now I want to talk about another demographic of students and those students with an individualized education program or iep how will mm-hmm. those students receive instruction
1: yes so we are still uh, governed and guided by their iep that's that's a that's a mandate Uh, We've been having um, virtual uh, chat and engagements uh, with parents of students with disabilities for them to understand how their child's needs will be met as dictated in their IEP. We also believe that that's mission critical so that we can figure out how to virtually meet uh, the resource needs, whether they are have other uh, challenges that require uh, other types of support Um, in addition to that for all of our children um, that are students with disabilities uh, we also know that everyone may not be able to virtually connect to get that information and so Mm -hmm. we have uh, case managers and um, special ed leads that are reaching directly reaching out directly to those families so that they can engage and know what they should anticipate for the start of the school year
0: this is uh, what I believe will probably hopefully be uh, the first of many conversations. And this is your first our relationship, which is just beginning, uh, Superintendent yes. Herring. It's the money question. <laughs> all right. Yes, yes, yes. Are you yes, ready yes, for it? Mind. No, but go ahead. <laughs> oh, here we go. The cost for all this. How much are we looking at? Have you looked at those numbers? Let me break some things down for you, Rose. Um, we're looking at more Now, you know, in a relationship, uh, you should never start with, let me break this down for you. <laughs> I'm sorry. Okay, let me try
1: that again. Let me try that again. So, Rose, this is what this looks like. <laughs> this is what we're real, This is our reality right now. Gotcha. Uh, We have been fortunate in Atlanta public schools that we were able to bring forward a balanced budget back in June. Mm -hmm. We know that I transitioned in May, but I was certainly in tune with those conversations and have been working closely with our board and CFO. However, the CARES Act funding has been a significant contributor to us. Mm -hmm. And so even where that's been upwards of over 25 plus million for Atlanta public schools, uh, we've also been fortunate that what we thought would be much more um, of a reduction in QBE dollars coming to us from the state. Mm -hmm. Uh, The initial uh, forecast of a a reduction or a budget cut of about 14% went down more than half. So that gave us some level of opportunity uh, to look at funding. And then of course, um, the city of Atlanta um, tax digest, uh, being able to see where that has positioned us as well. Um, But let me be really clear, we have no clue the impact that this pandemic has done on our children and on the um, actual academic performance and emotional and mental health wellness for all of them and i've said this to the board and this is tied to the budget question rose from march to december will tell us a great deal around how our children are performing or have been performing or where they have been, uh, not only uh, disrupted, but um, might have regressed. Mm -hmm. And so we recognize that, and this is a hopeful, optimistic, positive statement, that if by January or before January, we're back to a a new normal, but face-to-face, and we have a chance to do what is a much more in-depth assessment, we may very well be looking at additional needs for interventions and supports and resources and costs relative to staffing mm-hmm. to revisit what a school year will look like from January to December of
0: 2021. You and I, the first time we spoke, we had a conversation about the importance of the wraparound services. We had a conversation about the importance of meeting households needs beyond the students, the, the entire household you and I both know the about food insecurity in a lot of the neighborhoods that you all serve those students uh, will APS be able to continue providing meals for the communities for these students in their communities
1: so you know in my head Rose I was waiting for that question and I was like if she doesn't ask that question I got to make sure I get it in (laughs) Um, absolutely starting next week We knew that because our original start date for the first day of school was August 10th, that there were households and families ready and looking forward to that because of just what you said. So we chose not to amend that day. August 10th makes uh, it uh, the first um, re-delivery or availability of meals for families um, in the city of Atlanta. Mm -hmm. And so, and I wanna be clear, the week of August 10th and the week of August 17th meals are available for any child or any family that needs them and why am i saying any because august 24th is the first day of school and so starting August 24th and moving forward then it's APS specific because we'll be ordering our meals online and so all APS students and families will have access to meals but August 10th and 17th it's it's an extension of our summer feeding model and so it's available to any um, families or um, students that need them and for children and it is it is a 10 meal package it's five breakfast meals and five lunch meals distributed on a Monday And then uh, that will happen again on the 17th. Mm -hmm. And then starting the 24th, we will still deliver five breakfast and five lunch meals to cover the week. And what that will allow is for, uh, and you can, so so here again, you got three kids, you're walking away with 30 meals, uh, just to be clear around the numbers. Mm -hmm. But what we also want parents and families to realize, especially starting August 24th, they have to order online, and we are asking um, for this school year that they not only order online, but they order a week in advance. Um, that is critically important, uh, primarily because we want to make certain that we have the right amount of food available uh, as needed. That's, uh, we're marketing that aggressively, and here's something I want to share. This evening at 6 p.m., we're doing a, another town hall on Facebook. And um, the, uh, my lead inside of our district for um, child nutrition will actually show them what the meals look like okay. and talk at length around how to order for that.
0: Before I let you go, I want to talk about the support staff typically working in the school buildings and other facilities. Mm-hmm. What will they be doing? Uh, you all haven't had to lay folks off or have any, or had any furloughs, have you?
1: Well, so we've been so So this Lisa was coming. I was going to say we've been so blessed. We've been so blessed and fortunate that that we have not, and and more so. Last night our board approved an increase in uh, minimum wage in Atlanta public schools for uh, a classified group of individuals for whom their pay currently was twelve dollars and seventy cents an hour. We've increased it to fifteen dollars an hour. Uh, we believe that that was important. So no, we haven't furloughed. No, we haven't laid off. We've also increased the hours for our school bus drivers from four hour minimum to six because they're doing other roles. Mm-hmm. Uh, and that we believe has also been significant. Um, and uh, we have not furloughed. As it relates to district staff, uh, just like uh, we are engaging virtually, we have some essential individuals who are all valued. But... Part of their work requires them to leave home and to be out in the field. So they continue to work, but we still practice social distancing. And to be quite honest, um, just like myself, I am at home and at the office every day. Um, And yet when I'm there, uh, it is um, not what we're used to. It's not the full capacity, uh, but there are many of us who are doing a combination of blended work. And we also are embracing telework because we have to at this time.
0: And finally, Superintendent Herring, what's a marker in terms of time to assess if the spring school year will begin like the fall?
1: So we've made dates available. We shared those uh, yesterday evening. The biggest marker, Rose, was going to be community spread. Mm-hmm. Uh, I said this last night alongside my board chair virtually. The indicator for us to find ourselves in a space where we can do what we have all, uh, all of our lives known in terms of education, engaging in teaching and learning face to face. Is to get this community spread number, the, the community spread numbers down. Mm-hmm. That means wear these masks, social distance, wash our hands, sanitize, wear the masks, practice isolation as best as possible. If you know you're ill, do what uh, health guidance tells us to do. It's so mission critical Um, and and know that if we do those practices, we can look at the data to make an even more informed decision uh, to take care of our children and get them back in face to face. But I also want to remind us that virtual is not a bad word. Uh, It's just a challenging one right now. And we've also been poised to entertain how the future of learning will look. Um, we won't abandon virtual just because we're back face-to-face. We will have learned even more. Mm-hmm. And that's probably another conversation for another day, but I welcome that as well.
0: But what do you want folks to know about this decision that you all have made at APS?
1: So I'm going to answer that in two ways. Was number one, my daughter, Imani, is 23 years old. I believe that's right, 23. But I remember when she was four, five, six, and 7. And so... Who was going to tell me what was best for Imani other than me, right? And I get that from a parenting standpoint. Parents have the right, they do, to uh, express and do what they believe is in the best interest of their children. But now I'm a superintendent, and like all of my superintendent peers across this country, we are responsible for thousands of parents' children. And so our decision can't be grounded in what just helps a select group. But what helps all? To that end, uh, I respect the position, the the uh, the right to have a position. The only thing I can bring back to that is that our level of responsibility far exceeds those isolated positions. And um, we are in Atlanta, and perhaps one of the most well, I don't know that the word is even perhaps our disparity just around uh, economics in the city of Atlanta household household incomes. Where our lowest average household income is at twenty-three thousand, and the highest average household income is one hundred and sixty-seven thousand, we have a huge responsibility to do what is right for all children. Which means we won't make everyone happy, but we will make the decision that keeps all of them safe. Um, that's what I uh, that's what I observe. I respect the right to um, have a certain position around how to. to um, and some might argue will then give us a choice of uh, virtual or uh, face-to-face. But then that right also expands beyond just the children. We have adults and teachers, um, and I'm grateful that in Atlanta public schools, the vast majority of the feedback has been um, appreciation uh, for being able to have the ch- the chance to protect one's health and oneself. So... so The inequities that we embrace, and I do want to share something relative to equity and social justice that's unique now to APS, forces us to think about everyone, to honor where they may stand, but to execute what protects the vast majority. That's the complexity of this work in superintendency. But when we say that we believe uh, in doing what's right for children, I think these are the kind of decisions we have to stand for
0: Atlanta Public Schools Superintendent, Dr. Lisa Herring, and we've been discussing day one and beyond, for this fall school semester, which will be all virtual. Now, I gotta admit, I have to admit that for those kindergarten teachers, for day one, <laughs> all virtual. Bless you. <laughs> hey, Rose, well, my my
1: daughter worked in a kindergarten classroom for uh, a little more than a year, and she said, "Mama, if you had asked me to tell my kid, she said, if I if I would have turned my head, I'd turn around, and little Micah." would have on Michelle's mask <laughs> <A> mask <laughs> would be uh, on or, or your child would come home and you'd say what is this this is Kenny
0: Spider-Man mask yeah. I liked it better than my right, right? you know it's my favorite grade um, I love kindergartners I love
1: them. <laughs> so, right well, I love them all but there's something about kindergarten right um, we know it's different. I'm, I'm, there is nothing a p- apart about me that is removed from that reality. Mm-hmm. So we've also, we're also going to do, uh, you know, so all of these special uh, categories, we've been thoughtful about it. We're going to do an engagement support group for parents, children who are early learners to also help them have practices in place at home for whomever is helping them. Mm-hmm. Um, I want to acknowledge one more item. We approved last night, and we will launch the position, notice this week, the position of a chief equity and social justice officer for Atlanta public schools to work inside my administration to help us as a system address the issues tied to equity and social justice. School systems across the country, many, some, not many, it's not even fair to say many, Mm -hmm. some have a chief equity officer. I'm not sure who else has a chief equity and social justice officer, but that was monumental for us last night. We are now seeking someone to fill that position to help us lead this work. We've lost legends over the last several days Mm -hmm. and weeks, but we've been given a a responsibility to um, rise up. And I believe for public education, that's certainly no exception. Um, And part of this for us is to execute the chief equity and social justice officer search and then get the work going.
0: Thank you so much for taking the time, as always. I appreciate it. Where will you be on day one?
1: (laughs) I will be physically at buildings and virtually. And so it's a combination, right? We've been talking about this. We even principals and staff have the ability to check in on what virtual learning looks like superintendent will be checking in virtually i'll join a few sessions right i'll you'll be i'll be invited or kind of lean in and then even physically just to have a sense because there will be sites where teachers will be physically in their classroom
0: thank you so much superintendent herring best of luck to you this school year thank you i'm so grateful for the opportunity to talk with you and we'll talk with you soon
1: be well please be well i will thank you
0: The field of mental health counseling is growing rapidly, and Richmond Graduate University can equip you with everything you need as a licensed professional counselor while integrating your faith into your clinical practice. Programs are offered in Atlanta, Chattanooga, and online. Apply today at richmont.edu. That's R-I-C-H-M-O-N-T.edu. Closer Look continues now here on 90.1 WABE. As always, Atlanta's choice for NPR. I'm Rose Scott. Now, yes, typically around this time of year, students, parents, educators were all beginning to prepare for back to school. But this year, it's not the same. Many school systems across metro Atlanta and throughout the nation have either pushed back the start of the school year or when they do return, it's going to be virtually or a hybrid approach. And many have expressed concerns about the long term effects this could have on students. Now, early this year, as the pandemic began to spread, Many education policy experts expressed concerns that school closures, traditional school closures, could lead to long-term challenges for those students across the country. And there was an April headline from the Washington Post that warned, quote, millions of public school students will suffer from these school closures education leaders have concluded. Well, now there's a new study that's going to shed some light on this, about COVID-19's impact on student achievement, especially here in the metro Atlanta area. Joining me now to discuss this, we have Ed Chang, founding executive director of Redefined Atlanta, and Ken Zeff, executive director of Learn for Life, and the two organizations commissioned the report. Thank you both for taking the time.
4: Thank you for having us.
0: Let's begin here before we get into the report. And Ed, I'll start with you. So many folks have said, you know, this pandemic has exposed all these inequities and, and the disparities and the gaps. But let's be really clear. There were these issues before the pandemic. This pandemic really is going to amplify what folks have been saying for so many decades. What do you make of that?
4: Yeah, I think that's right. I I loved your your usage of the word expose and then amplify because i think the reality really is the idea of amplify i've been in education in atlanta for the last 20 years um and these are not new problems right Mm -hmm. they they are manifesting in different ways but they are not new problems and so when covid hit and schools closed folks were talking about how do we get children access to um computers how do we get children access to high-speed internet well the the problem with Thinking about how do we get right? It means that those problems existed beforehand, right? Mm-hmm. So, um, so pre-COVID, those were still challenges. Post-COVID, it became amplified because now it was the only means to receive education. Um, you know, folks were talking about food insecurity. Folks were talking about, um, you know, how do we make sure that. Um, parents can have jobs, essential workers and things mm-hmm. like that, folks who have experienced job loss. And so I think the idea of amplification is, is exactly right. And, um, and you know, maybe one of the silver linings of this, uh, if there is one, is that um, the amplification made sure that everybody in Atlanta was aware of these issues. And, and we've seen a lot of folks actually step up to try to help provide resources.
0: Ken, what about you? What do you make of this moment that we're in and what this pandemic has exposed in terms of our educational system, particularly at the public school level,
2: we, we call it distance learning. It really was more emergency learning. Uh, mm-hmm. when March 13th, when the governor shut down schools and said, you know, what in person instruction done, uh, schools pivoted. And I, look, our teachers did heroic jobs, our administrators did heroic jobs. We'd never had anything like this, you know, in, in your know, 2014 Snowmageddon, nothing had ever been as serious as that, right? Mm-hmm. That, that was a week. And that's when schools started to think and districts started to think about how do we support kids uh, who are not in person. But look, as, as I'd mentioned, students are struggling with technology. We think only about 80% of kids were able to sign on during uh, in the metro area during, during the pandemic. Teachers had to transition lesson plans to uh, it, virtual instruction they had no the scope and sequence their assessments none of that stuff mapped with uh, virtual instruction plus teachers are managing their own families their own their mm-hmm. own internal dynamics and, and trying to stay ahead of it and then of course parents who are you know now you know our parents are are, are struggling to not only keep their their economic lives together their family lives together but now they also have to take on this role of teacher mm-hmm. especially for our young kids and for our special needs kids uh, and i think like everything i think ed mentioned this disproportionately hurts our communities that have been historically underserved because they don't have the resources, they don't have the safety net. And so any, you know, expose is the right word. These conditions were there before. It just it just exacerbated, exacerbated them.
0: I talked to a parent who told me, you know, that was very difficult for her two boys to access the online because they did not have connectivity within the household. Um, she just had a cell phone. Um, she was also an essential worker. Um, so you throw all of that together in the mix and, and she said that her boys were able to go to a cousin's house, utilize their internet access. And she told me, she said, you know, I hated doing that. You know, we, I should be able to provide that. And she said, quite frankly, Rose, I just, we just can't afford it. I looked for the school to be able to supplement what I can't do for them at home. You all have heard this before, that this is a struggle for so many parents. Ken?
2: You know, they, they say we're, we're, uh, we're all in the same storm, but we're not all in the same boat. You mm-hmm. know, there are, there are parents, there are two parent f- families that are able to navigate this with, you know, inconvenience, but be able to navigate it. But the folks that don't have the resources at home, that don't have this opportunity for supplemental instruction, you know, we're gonna, I, I think one of, you know, if there are silver linings that come out of this, I think digital equity is gonna be a non-negotiable. In the same way that we would not tolerate walking into a school and seeing only half the kids have textbooks. And so, you know, we just sort of shrug and say that's all they get. We're gonna have to, as a community, figure out how do we get not just devices in kids' hands, which is something that, that is, we're making progress in, but, but reliable Wi-Fi. If you don't have Wi-Fi, if you don't have access to, to your teacher, uh, you're completely cut off. And I think, as, especially as we get into next year, uh, where there's not relationships with kids already between teachers, it's gonna be a real challenge. So as a community, we gotta figure out how to, how to address some of these needs.
0: Well, Ed, you know, folks like you all, you rely on the data to back up the claims. Why was it so important now for you all to go ahead and get an early start in commissioning this report so you could see so far the impact of COVID-19 on, on Atlanta's schoolchildren?
4: Yeah, we had a lot of a lot of conversations with folks and in, in, in doing the initial research and review what we noticed is that there was so much information talking about what was gonna happen around the nation, Mm -hmm. but nothing in particular around what was the particular impact on Atlanta's children, right? And so um, knowing that this is, our organization focus is mainly within um, the city of Atlanta and Atlanta public schools, and knowing that this is a problem that everybody is facing, we wanted to make sure that we were partnering and broaden the study to a metro Atlanta area to really understand the impact Um, of what we anticipated that there would be learning loss, but we wanted to know specifically what that learning loss would be for Atlantis children.
0: Well, let me ask you this and I'll get this question to Ken too. Then what stood out for you, or maybe you weren't even alarmed uh, when you got the results back from the study?
4: Well, I think like one thing to note is that we decided to do this study a little bit differently than where a lot of studies um, focused in on a lot of studies focused in on like, what was the percentage of um, you know learning loss when it came to like uh, outright scores, let's say mm-hmm. um, uh, on these on these tests, we we decided to focus a little bit more on this idea of percentage of, of decrease on expected proficiency. Meaning, uh, we thought that parents would be more interested. We thought that communities would be more interested. Is my child projected to be on grade level or not? Right, mm-hmm. because if if you're going from a fifty to a forty-six, that doesn't mean as much as Hey, my child was was going to be on grade level, and now they're not, right? And so that's the part that really kind of stood out to me is this idea that um, when we did the study, um, looked at things like summer learning loss, things like national disasters like Hurricane Harvey, Hurricane Katrina, where there was a little bit more extended learning, like um, extended academic um, absence, um, as well as other indicators like attendance and. And things like that, how that impacts. And, and what we found is a, about a 3.6% projected decline in the number of potential stu- third graders on reading level, um, translating to about 21,000 fewer students in English language uh, arts, and about 4.9% decrease to so about 29,000 fewer students who would have been proficient, who no longer might be, right? And so, um, you know, it, compared to about 600,000 children in the metro area, That may not seem like a whole lot, but when you think about it, if I translate that down, 21,000 students, if you think about an average, maybe 500 kids per school, Mm -hmm. that's about 42 entire schools worth of children Mm -hmm. um, that may have been proficient before that might not be anymore, right? And so if we think about those numbers, we also know where those schools might likely be.
0: Is that in communities of color or low-income communities?
4: Both. Both.
0: Ken, what about you as you went through the data? What stood out for you?
2: Well, we wanted to focus, at Learn for Life we focus on these six indicators, these cradle to career indicators, and we, we bring folks together to understand what's happening on those indicators and how students are progressing and what strategies can we lift up to, for success. And so we looked at it, and so I was pleased that we looked at the third grade and eighth grade, third grade reading, eighth grade math, and the, reach, the research says those are critical inflection points for students. If students can't read by third grade, they're four times more likely to drop out uh, by high school. And if they can't perform math uh, at grade level in eighth grade, then their chance of doing higher order uh, analytics as they get into high school and and being successful in post-secondary is greatly diminished. And so I think what really stood out for me was that if you look at the, the growth over time, our educators had been making progress very slow, mm-hmm. very, very modest, but sustained and real going from about 40 to 45 percent of kids who, uh, who are on grade level. And in a matter of just a couple months, that uh, about a year and a half of progress was erased. And so we, we, we now have to climb that mountain again. And so I think looking at it in, in, in the perspective of in one one sense, our educators and teachers and parents working together have been making progress, slow, steady, uh, probably not as aggressive as we would like, you know, because we can't wait and kids can't wait, but real progress. And then due to this external force that just kind of swept in, we lost about a year and a half of growth. And so that's, you know, we should be encouraged that we can do this work, but it's discouraging that uh, so much pain and suffering happened so quickly.
0: So, gentlemen, aside from the traditional what we call summer loss, you all are saying that those nine weeks from when Georgia schools were shut down to when maybe summer school started, those nine weeks were so crucial in how a student was on track in terms of proficiency in English and math. And you're saying that for those 21,000 or 29,000 students, that is going to be a tremendous, tremendous impact on them moving forward. So when they come back to school in whatever capacity that's going to be in the fall, they're going to be behind. Is that what you're saying?
4: Yeah, they'll be they'll be behind even more, and and that's that's why one of the recommendations within the study, and I, I know a lot of districts are um, contemplating different ways to do this, but that's why one of the recommendations is to assess on the front end um, where kids are academically, but you know also I, I think it's important to to assess where kids are from a social emotional health perspective as well, because we know that ex- children are experiencing a lot more trauma. Um, through this as well, through whether it's from job loss. We know that COVID's impacting black and brown communities um, at higher rates and things like that. So um, yeah, so I I, I kind of equate it to if if you don't um, assess children on the front end and know where kids are the starting point for kids, it's like driving without a map or without Mm -hmm. a destination
0: if you're just tuning in i'm joined by ed chang he's the founding executive director of redefine atlanta and ken zeff executive director of learn for life and we're talking about a new report that details covid 19 effect on learning particularly here in the atlanta area for atlanta students you know you all talked about how do we take this information and then get a acceptable or positive outcome local school leaders are taking steps their lens to prevent learning loss. So I recently had a conversation with DeKalb County's new superintendent, Cheryl Watson-Harris, and we talked about this. Take a listen.
3: We've been working very closely with our chief uh, information officer, uh, Monica Davis, and her team uh, who really have done a deep dive in terms of student engagement data from the spring to see exactly where we had the gaps. I mean, we, we know certain communities where um, we would expect to see a greater need for devices, um, but beyond assumptions, you know, I, I like to lead with data, um, really looking at those numbers and then drilling down in terms of the, the root cause. So uh, in the spring, uh, we did make devices available for our six through 12 students. Um, right now we're in the process of purchasing devices for our elementary school students who had um, who who did not all receive devices uh, in the spring Um, and so our goal is to have hundred percent of our students with devices Um, but as you uh, mentioned it's not just giving the device right Mm -hmm. we have to also make sure that they have access to um, the internet so also looking into some creative partnerships to ensure that you know we remove removed that additional barrier for students um, and in the process of, of doing that uh, right now but in addition to that you know we're not stopping there we're also looking at additional supports for families because parents are being asked to take on a new role mm-hmm. uh, in terms of educating and supporting their children at home so also looking at supports for families Uh, a a -a dial-a-teacher program is something that we're excited to launch Um, thinking about how we can use our public access television station also for uh, tutorials for students and for families Um, And then most importantly, thinking about the social emotional supports for our students who are experiencing trauma. I mean, our students and our staff and our families, this is a traumatic um, experience. Mm -hmm. Uh, And uh, so building again, a a robust and comprehensive plan that addresses the digital divide, uh, but also uh, supports our students and their families in terms of their their social, emotional health. So
0: Ed and Ken, traditionally we call those wraparound services that students need beyond the classroom. Uh, how important is that as school districts and educators look at how they're going to make up for this loss of learning?
4: Uh, yeah, I think it's it's tremendously important. I think it's it's always been important. And so again, like this, this Amplify piece, parents are asked to do, more in their children's education um, during these times than, than they were before. And I think that uh, teachers as well, right? Mm-hmm. And so, um, so when we think about social emotional supports, when we think about um, you know, helping to support parents and knowing how to help support their children, um, you know, I don't know about you, but math being taught today is different than math what it was yesterday, right? So uh, Apparently, we um, don't
0: carry the one anymore, correct? Exactly, <laughs> exactly, right?
4: So, uh, so there's a lot of work that has to be done, and there's a lot of work that has to be done in developing teachers as well. Mm-hmm. Um, and add, that, add on top of that, this idea of child care, right, and child care services. So, you know, those who have resources and support have figured out different childcare solutions, and those who uh, may be children of essential workers, it's not just only about now one-to-one devices and access to um, high-speed internet, but it's also like, who's taking care of that child during that time mm-hmm. when money is being made to put food on the table and to put a roof over your head, right, so, um, so I think all those things are important. I, I do think that is important to say that partnerships, um, the city, philanthropy, that this is, a, this is something that we all have a part to play in and we cannot expect uh, a school district to be all things for everybody that it, you know, um, and this is this is something that we as a city have to have to embrace our kids. And I, I think that who we are uh, as a city is a direct reflection sometimes of how we treat our children.
0: And Ken, before I let you jump in, we should also note that many school districts took it upon themselves to also make sure that students and households were receiving meals during this time as mm-hmm. much as they could. Um, so that, that's, you're absolutely right. That is so crucial. Um, Ken, when we talk about these wraparound services and these other support systems, not only for the students but for the households, for the parents, what do you want to emphasize here?
2: It's so it's such an important question, and it's so often overlooked. If you think about half of low-income families experience some sort of uh, wage reduction or job loss. One out of four students is in Metro Atlanta is has faces food insecurity all of that lands, plus just the fear of the virus, the lack of, of support that students have had, because think about where students get their support. It's from their peer group, from their teachers. Well, you know, this virus is forcing us, it's a vortex pulling us away from each other in the very moment when we need that support more than ever. And so I think those wraparound services are, are, uh, are obviously critical. The challenge that districts have is they have to move fast because this is a rapidly changing situation, and yet they have to bring everybody along. And I think that, that fundamental tension of wanting to be inclusive and wanting to create pathways and opportunities and have everybody own this, at the same time, you know, in the past month, if you, if you, if you map you know, every few days, district plans change, which was, you know, that's what you do when you get new information, you change. Mm-hmm. And so I think parents and, uh, and nonprofits have to find ways to, you know, obviously, we all need a little bit of grace and a little bit of patience to, to work with our district leaders. And I, I was excited by a lot of the innovative ideas. That um, that uh, that Cheryl Watson Harris brings into, into cab because I think that's that's going to be exciting. It's going to come down to execution. It's going to come down to moving these large battleships. And I think one thing we've learned uh, is that in districts it's hard for districts to move nimbly. These are large mm-hmm. operations that have lots of tentacle, tentacles in the community, and so I think if, the more that we can create. Uh, those partnerships is essential. I think it's going to be incumbent upon districts to be as vulnerable and transparent as possible and nonprofit leaders to lead uh, and, and be supportive in listening to, to try to meet districts to as try to meet districts where they are.
0: OK, and let me stay with you as we wrap up, because this report tracks proficiency, but also is there an indication of how long it could take to get what we would call an acceptable um I guess increase or positive outcome when we look at these students who are starting this school year already behind, particularly in math and English. What does the the data the data show about how long this could take?
2: I mean, that's really the the question that's with that's within our control. We we know instructional time matters, and yet we see districts having to cut instructional time, and so we that's fewer days that students get. In addition. We're sailing into these budget cr- these budget, uh, budget crunch. The state's cut 11% of, of school district budgets to fund things like after-school programs, tutoring programs, instructional support, supplemental learning for kids. So I, I think it, it, at the pace that we're at now, it's going to take a year, two years, maybe three years. If we can put our foot on the gas and invest in things that work, uh, I think we can get there quicker, and I think that ultimately that investment will be well-rewarded.
0: Three years, Ken? I'm, I'm sure a listener is saying, "What?"
2: If you look back to the 2008 recession, it took three to four years for budgets to come back. Mm-hmm. And so, think about what, what, when. So, you look at school districts that are some districts are furloughing, some districts are are uh, not or have position freezes. So. It, in some ways we're doing exactly the opposite of what we need to do, right? So we're, we're in a crisis and we're reducing spending and it's not school district's fault. They're, they're playing limited. So unless additional resources uh, and commitment from some of our public leaders flows through, I I don't see it. It's going to be really challenging to accelerate that pace.
0: Ed, you want to add anything to that?
4: I agree with Ken. I mean, I think, I, I think that districts are being put in positions where, where they're doing heroic things, but they're trying to do more with less, right? We have a, you know, a state budget that just got passed that, that cut almost a billion dollars from the from the state education budget, right? Um, you know, but, but I will say this is an opportunity. We're seeing folks who are being forced to innovate because of circumstance, right? And so um, this idea of being able to reimagine what focusing on children looks like, um, I'm curious to see what comes out of it. You know, folks are being very creative around child care delivery of education and inequity. And I do think that while it will take years, the worst thing that could happen is when all is said and done, that we end up going back to a new to a new normal pre-COVID, um, because normal never really worked for Black and brown kids in the first place. And so this is an opportunity to really reimagine how we can do this differently as well.
0: Ed Chang, founding executive director of Redefine Atlanta, and also Dr. Ken Zeff, executive director of Learn for Life. And we've been talking about a new report that looks at COVID-19's impact on Atlanta's school children gentlemen thank you so much for taking the time and sharing the information this report we'll have a link to the report on our website thank you both
4: thank you thank you for all you do for atlanta rose yeah thank you so much really appreciate you
0: that's it for this edition of Closer Look, which is produced by Grace Walker and LaShawn Hudson. Our engineer is Shelley Knavey. If you missed any of today's program, it's online at wabe.org closerlook And of course, you can listen to Closer Look weeknights at 8 p.m. And listen whenever you want, because Closer Look is now available as a podcast. Just visit NPR One or your favorite streaming app and subscribe. This is 90.1 WABE, Atlanta's choice for NPR. I'm Rose Scott.
3: Hi, it's Terry Gross, the host of Fresh Air. We bring you in-depth, long-form interviews with actors, directors, musicians, authors, journalists, and more. Listen to our Peabody Award-winning Fresh Air podcast from WHYY and NPR.